0: Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 452 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I uh, hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Got Erwin McManus back on the podcast. We go all over the place today. And today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. You can join me, Bob Goff, Nona Jones, and Tim Timberlake for the free five day social media growth challenge. Register today at socialmediachallenge.com. And by Remodel Health, get 50% off their health benefits analysis and learn how much you can save your team by using the promo code CARRY50 at remodelhealth.com slash analysis. Well, as you know, for those of you who are involved in the church or lead at a church, or for those of you who like, don't attend church for your own reasons, uh, the church is in a really interesting season right now. And Irwin McManus and I talk about the future of the church how to do evangelism more effectively. By the way, we make a reference here to a couple of episodes he did on the Lewis Howe Show. Strongly recommend you head on over to the School of Greatness and listen to those. It's just fascinating. We'll link to them in the show notes. And then authenticity. And uh, Herman talks a lot about the criticism that he's endured in the church. So uh, for those of you who have been pummeled and criticized over the last year, which is a lot of you, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. So Erwin McManus has committed his life to the study of genius. He's got a brand new book called The Genius of Jesus, and he's committed to the pursuit of God. He never quite knew that one day the worlds would collide. He is an iconoclast, an entrepreneur, a storyteller, fashion designer, filmmaker, cultural thought leader whose singular intention is to, he says, violate our view of reality. He's also the founder of Mosaic, a church movement based in the heart of Hollywood, Uh, that spans the globe, and the acclaimed author of The Way of the Warrior, The Last Arrow, and now The Genius of Jesus. So I think you're really going to appreciate this conversation. Would you like to help with growing your church or nonprofit during this holiday season? If so, then I'd like you to come on over and join me for ProMedia Fire's free five-day social media growth challenge starting October 25th. In the Social Media Growth Challenge, you're going to learn how to turn your social media from frustrating into amazing social media content created in seven minutes a day or less. Uh, You'll learn how to launch a simple social media initiative that will stop the scroll and drive growth this holiday season. And for churches and nonprofits that are growing online, you learn how to grow and scale through the power of a proven next-step digital format. So join me, Bob Goff, Nona Jones, and Tim Timberlake, thousands of other mission-driven leaders for the Social Media Growth Challenge. This is a five-day learning experience. It's live this week, and replays are available after. If you're asking, register for free at socialmediachallenge.com. Do you remember back in the day how pension plans changed? Uh, used to have like company pension plans, then suddenly 401ks showed up. Well, the same thing has been happening with health benefits over the last decade. It's something called managed individual, and that is replacing old group plans, just like 401ks replaced retirement plans, the traditional ones. Our podcast listeners, listeners to this podcast alone, have already saved $2.5 million in just the past 18 months making the switch, and their team have gotten a lot better coverage as a result. So that's pretty cool but it wouldn't be possible without Remodel Health. They've been serving Christian organizations since 2016 and their risk-free health benefits analysis lets you get a full preview of what the change would look like for your team. Normally it costs $35 per employee, but they're letting me give you a 50% discount. You can get it with the code CARRY50. That's C A R E Y 5 0 when you go to remodelhealth.com/analysis. That's remodelhealth.com/analysis. Use the promo code CARRY50. Well, into my conversation now with Erwin McManus. Erwin, welcome back to the podcast. It's so good to see you
1: again and be with you. It's so good to be with you, man. It's uh, It's been a long time, but uh, I just see you everywhere. It's just exciting, incredible amount of influence that you've gained over the last few years. Well, thank you. It's a little crazy, I'll tell you, for a guy
0: who works out of his basement, I continue to be amazed at what happens. But, you know, it is, it is, influence is an incredible thing. I mean, you look at your church and you have a global footprint. I know there's a lot of young leaders who are listening, Erwin, so let's start here. How do you think influence works? Because it is part mystery, isn't
1: it? It is. Well, I mean, it works differently today than maybe it did even 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And yeah. um, I think in the past, influence worked um, so much more connected to actual uh, productivity. And so you had influence because you'd actually accomplished something significant and Uh, And especially before there was mass media, because um, your entire influence was based on word of mouth, or through um, or through power and authority. And now influence is much more connected to fame. It's much more connected to celebrity. Uh, You can become world famous on on TikTok, right? You know, world famous on Instagram, world famous through social media, by never having accomplished anything significant in your life. So I. I, I think that probably this area will create a new language for influence. Uh, those who are uh, influencers in the moment and they're more like fireworks. People are really drawn to them. They have a, a short-term celebrity status. And 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 then you'll have people who um, have sustainable influence where it's not really about their personal celebrity, but the impact of their ideas, their actions, uh, their commitments shape culture and really carve out a path for the future. So I I do think we're in a moment where influence is actually becoming multi-layered. Yeah, that, you
0: know, I think that really resonates because you're right. We do live in a world where you can be famous for being famous. You have that one video that went viral. You were dancing or you were skateboarding, listening to Fleetwood Mac or something like that. And that's kind of your moment. But like nobody could name that person a year later or six months later. Um, when you think about your own influence, because this is a subject that comes up, and I realize it's, it's, a, it's a laced poison, so you have to be so careful how you, how you navigate it or how you even think about it. But when you think about the way that you've been able to make an impact over the last few decades, what, what do you think have been some of the factors in your own ability to, to sustain influence in, in what I would suggest is a healthy and helpful way?
1: Well, I, I think there are for me several factors. One, you have to realize I'm sixty-three years old, so I'm not a, a thirty-three year old influencer. <laughs> you know, right. and and um and so there I don't have the um, you, you know, I don't I don't have the weight of being in a sense trendy. You know, I'm way past any trendy influence. It really now becomes whether you have anything that's timeless that you have to contribute that allows you to have sustainable influence and um I I made choices early on in my life that I would never hit the center of the bell curve. So if you think about influence, right, you think about the adopter categorization with, you know, like 2.2% of people are innovators and then 12.4% or so like that are early adopters. Then 34% are early majority, 30% late majority, 12% um, late adopters. And then 2% what they call laggards or nostalgics. Yeah. Yeah. And and most influencers hit that the the big fat center of the bell curve. Even mega churches, most really influential pastors or or people in in, in media, it's that 70 percent of the middle that gives you what's dramatic popular influence. And I think a part of the reason I've had a sustained influence, but not what I would call an. Um, um, a, a, a massive influence on a large cultural or popular scale is that my life has been focused on innovators and early adopters. Hmm. And and so my influence has been targeted toward people who are pioneers, inventors, entrepreneurs, innovators, creators. And I always knew that I would not be particularly influential or popular with the early and late majority. And, and, and so having been now living six decades, I can tell you that um, ideas that... I laid out there to the culture 30 years ago that were considered heretical, then slowly get picked up by um, innovators and early adopters. And they're the ones better postured to get it to the early majority and and to the late majority. And so I've lived long enough now to see ideas that uh, had me blacklisted now become common um, thinking in, like, in the Christian world and in the secular world. Can you give us an example of one of those ideas, Erwin? Sure, I, I, can, I can give you an exact one. <laughs> okay, and 20, about 20 years ago, I was speaking, i would be rolled, I guess, rolled direct. I was speaking at Catalyst and, uh, in Atlanta, and um, I did a message on Solomon was wrong. And uh, that Solomon was wrong when he said, there's nothing new under the sun. And that this has been a, a pervasive Western mindset, that um, there's nothing new under the sun. And it has uh, in many ways even been reinforced through Calvinism that uh, believes in a deterministic future. And so I did this whole message that Solomon was wrong. And I even gave a contrast from the Bible. Uh, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, but in Isaiah 43, God says, uh, put away the former things, do not dwell in the past. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up, but will you even be aware of it? So I said, so who are you gonna believe? Solomon on his worst day where everything is meaningless, or God when he says that I'm constantly doing a new thing. So I was basically blacklisted from Catalyst for the next decade. And 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 then I was invited to speak at the Willow Creek Summit. I was going to do a different message, and I felt like God just sort of like um, ransacked my soul and told me to talk about Solomon being wrong. And I did the exact same uh, conceptual message at the Leadership Summit as the last talk. And after I was done, Bill, I mean, Bill Hybels literally put his head down the moment I began speaking and uh, you, could, you could feel the distress. And then when uh, I finished, he got up and he said, well, that's it, bye. And he didn't even, he just walked away. And then uh, just to add to this, um, Bill Hybels and Jimmy Otta did a, um, a, a summit summary a month later of all the speakers. And I've never watched them, but I thought I should watch this one because I know that my talk did not go well and uh, And my poor wife's like, "Why did you have to do that?" You know, and And so when they did the summary of that conference, they put clips of every speaker and talked about their messages, except for mine. I was completely eliminated from the uh, post-conference conversation uh, um, from the Global Leadership Summit. And my brother who was watching, said, because he was watching to see what people would say, what they would say about me, he goes. The worst thing happened to you that could happen to any controversial figure. And I said, "What's that?" He goes, "You were completely ignored." Oh and <laughs> now, what's interesting to me is that talk had tremendous momentum around the world, even with the GLS. And uh, and then about a decade later, when I was finally invited to go back to Catalyst, I point blank in an interview. They had three cameras, and and I was there in an interview, and they and I said, "Hey, since you're asking me all this question interview, I have a question for you. Was I?" Uh, consciously banned from Catalyst because of my message. And I was told yes. Hmm. And, and, then, and then I actually said, this interview will never see the light of day. And a month later, they called me and said, hey, something happened to the camera, technological you know, uh, problems and that message, that whole podcast was lost. I don't think I've ever told this whole story to someone. Oh, wow, yeah, I haven't heard of it. A great underground scoop. And, and then here's the crazy thing. 10 years later, when I'm speaking at Catalyst, Andy Stanley, see, I'm, I'm giving you like, you can go back, get all the details, does a message almost right before I speak. And I think it was this opening line, cause I was, I love Andy and so I'm listening, right? And yeah. in this opening line, Andy says, we've all, um, we've heard it said that there's nothing new under the sun. And then he said, and we all know that's wrong. And the whole place applauded.
0: I've heard Andy say that,
1: yeah. Yes, so see, by the time Andy says it, you know what's accepted as orthodoxy. But when I say it, you know it's going to be seen as heresy. And, wow. and I remember one of the things I, I, um, I told Brian Houston before I did his TV show was, today's heresy is tomorrow's orthodoxy. Hmm. And, and, and Brian looked at me and goes, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but, and the reason I said that was he was asking me a question. He said, he said have you ever like thought something about someone and then, when you got to know them, you realized that your perceptions were wrong. Oh, yeah. And I said, Brian, I know exactly what you mean. You thought I was a heretic, and uh, and now that you've gotten to know me, you realize I'm not who you thought I was. And and I've lived with that for my 43 years as a follower of Christ. Huh. And uh, and I can tell you that 40 years ago, no, I'm sorry, that's that's not right. 33 years ago, I was in the living room of our house, or so, about 30 years ago. And I said I was in the living room, I said to my wife, I, I, I don't know how long I can keep this silent. Solomon was wrong. Everywhere I travel in the world, everybody keeps saying there's nothing new under the sun. Every time I bring a new idea, every time I talk about innovation, every time I, I try to help create a different future, I'm told by Christian leaders, Irwin, 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 they would just pat me on the head, there's nothing new under the sun. And, and I said, Solomon was wrong, Solomon was wrong. And my wife said, honey, please don't ever say that publicly. Please never say that outside of this house. So for at least a decade, I never actually said it publicly because I was trying so hard to fit into the box of thinking of Christianity. And the reality is that, uh, Carrie, my entire journey in the Christian faith has been, people think I'm against Christianity. I'm actually for the church, Hmm. but I'm not for mutually accepted delusion. And I, and, and I finally accepted that my role in this historic movement is that I'm here to violate your view of reality. I'm not here to be popular. I'm not here to be liked. I'm not here to be accepted. I'm not here to be on TikTok. I'm here to violate your view of reality. And that's both for Christians and non-Christians.
0: Not to get into a big theological debate, but why was it important for you to point out that Solomon was wrong? What was the idea behind that claim? because it
1: creates a paralysis among people of faith and their engagement of the future. You see, when I would talk to people about making seismic changes that would impact the world, I would always get this response. You know, if God wants it to happen, it's gonna happen. You know, God's in charge of the future. God's in control of the future. The future's out of our hands. Erwin, you just need to realize that, you know, God's in control, God's sovereign. And... I'm a really pragmatic person when it comes to the existential expression of our faith in real time and space. Hmm. And I go, you know, evil men do not wait for permission from God to try to activate their will on the world. Yeah, that's true. And 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 so they believe they have an impact, not only in the present, but the future. And then good people sit passively back going, God, if God wants it to happen, it's going to happen. And so what I find is that evil tends to have a proactivity and good tends to have a passivity. And I want people to realize that the most spiritual activity that a human being ever engages in is choosing. And that the material from which the future is created is choice. And so in The Artist and Soul, uh, I don't know how many years ago, I actually laid out an anthropology. And a lot of my books actually have an anthropology underneath the theology that all human beings are creative, right. and that, that what makes humans different than every other species is that humans create the future, that humans create futures, not a singular future, but many futures. In the same way that bees create uh, hives and ants create colonies, and create dams, humans create But we do it so naturally, it's so intrinsic to us that we don't even realize that we're creating futures while we're doing it. And I wanted to destroy the mythology that the future was set, that the future was already determined, and that humans are just passively stepping into that future. By the way, that's the view—that's the view of scientific determinism, and that—and uh, so when you have the national conference of, of scientific uh, of, of atheists and and scientific determinism, they believe the future is set. They believe everything is mathematical. They wow. believe, in a sense, in a fatalistic future. And they also believe that creativity, spirituality, and choice are illusions. I'm going, wait a minute, why is it that Christians believe the exact same thing that scientific deterministic atheists believe? We should probably step back and ask ourselves, where did we get this?
0: Well, and, and to be fair, you point out other scriptures where God is doing a new thing. And I mean, Isaiah, it says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. We have a new heaven, a new earth, a renewed heaven, a renewed earth, the kingdom of God arrives, et cetera, et cetera. So... I don't want to create a whole debate in the comments on that, but well, well put.
1: Every time God does something new is attached to it. There is no new without God. Mm. There is no new without God. And, and I think that what happens is that when we're trapped inside of the created order, there is nothing new under the sun. But when we reconnect to the creator of the universe, then everything becomes new because now we're part of the creative order, not just the created order.
0: I think we last sat down to have a conversation like this a couple of years ago. So it was pre-pandemic. So much has changed. And one of the quotes in an earlier interview, I think I've, this is round three with you, Erwin, on the show, but it was either round one or one, round two. You said something I've quoted so many times, and I'm paraphrasing it, but to be a futurist in the church, you need to only understand the present clearly. Is that about the quote, Irwin?
1: Yeah, pretty close. You know, to, yeah, to be a futurist in the church, you only need to see the present clearly, yeah. because you don't, you don't have to see the future, you just need to see the present. Because the, the church, in, for some reason, seems to inherently live in the past. Hmm. And, and, and the conversations that usually have with Christian leaders are not about a future that they're afraid of, it's actually a present that already exists. And it's really hard sometimes to help a person realize, no, you don't get a choice about this change, it has already happened. Right. And, and you're just living in the past, ignoring the reality of the present. We're not even talking about the future. It would be so exciting for the church to actually begin talking about the future. And But if you don't have a clear understanding of how the future is created. Yeah, and so, you
0: know, we have been through so much in the last two years. The world's been turned upside down. The church, business, everything's been turned upside down. What are you seeing in the future? I wanted to make sure I asked you that. Like, what... When now, when you look ahead at the future, what do you see, and what do you hope others will see?
1: Yeah, there was a huge company that did a um one of the first virtual conferences at the beginning of the pandemic when everything shut down, they had a huge conference scheduled, and so they went virtual and they asked me to speak and i and i and they asked me, what do you see right now with this pandemic that's just emerging and um we didn't really realize the level of quarantine, how long we're going to be you know um uh, in this pre- in the, that's present situation, and I told him, I said, what's, "What we're about to experience is the ice age for the church. And if you can't adapt and innovate and recreate, you will not survive this pandemic."
0: Hmm.
1: And and I actually saw the last two years at the beginning of it as an ice age. And and what an ice age does is it basically brings. Um, a chapter to a close that will happen eventually, but it makes it happen sooner, and and it also allows there to be an a massive resurgence of adaptation and mm-hmm. innovation. And the, in that sense, it's not that the strong survive; it's that the um, the flexible survive, the adaptive survive. Right. And 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 so I, I actually think that we're still coming out of that. We're we're mourning what has been lost, and a lot of people are trying to figure out how to reclaim it. And one of the things I told our own uh, leaders here at Mosaic is, we're not going back. We're going forward. We're not going to reclaim what we had. We're going to let go of that, and we're going to create what we've never had. Hmm. And I, I think if churches spend a lot of their uh, all their energy trying to get back what they've lost, they're not going to be postured for the future. I think you have to learn um, how to reinvent yourself in this new reality. And, uh, and that uh, is very exciting. And I, I want to put myself in a particular category because I think church. a lot of people put me in a category because of the way I think or express things that of uh, the same people who don't believe in the church. Because I've heard a lot of people go, you know, the church is, is an antiquated concept. It's an idea that's, it, 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 whose time has come to an end. The church cannot survive this new reality. And, and I'm not in that camp. And I actually think the, the, the church is incredibly resilient and, and, and constantly reinvents herself. And, and I, I'm convinced the church was Jesus's idea. And I think that his ideas sustain time because his ideas are transcendent. They come from eternity. And so I'm really hopeful about the future of the church. And I, I'm also um, convinced of the, of the essential necessity of the church that one of the things people do not know how to do, like if you just look at things objectively, even if you don't believe in God, even if you kind of hate Christianity, one of the things that no other institution or organization knows how to do is create community. I mean, if you eliminate the whole belief in God, Christianity is amazing at creating human community. Places where people belong, where they are loved, where they have family and they have friendships, they have an extended tribe, and and I think that, that um, talent, that singular talent that the church has is why the church not only will prevail, but must prevail. Humans need each other. And if there is no uh, human narrative of the importance of us walking and doing life together, the the world's going to become more um, insulated, more uh, segmented and more violent. Community is the greatest solution to violence. What are you doing or what
0: will you be doing at Mosaic that is different uh, as a result of what's happened?
1: Well, we're not doing almost anything the same yet. So you have to realize right. that I, I know that I have friends in Texas and in Florida and other places. They've been meeting for the last year. It was like a blip, right? And well, right back where we left off. And But
0: they're not seeing what they saw in 2019. They're not generally seeing the return that
1: anybody you hope for. And I think it's because they jump-started. They were desperate mm-hmm. to go back so they didn't lose what they had. And we haven't even gone back to anything resembling what was before at Mosaic at all. And and that's been intentional. Mm-hmm. And so we shifted, you know, we already had shifted before the pandemic to moving things toward being high, um, highly focused on how do you communicate the message in a virtual world? How do you how do you mentor people in the virtual world? How do you build up leaders in a virtual world? How do you expand in a virtual world? And, and always believing in the importance of, of, um, of gathering in person wherever it's possible, but not as a singular strategy for impacting the world. And so one of the things we did is we opened up houses all over the world because this has been true before the pandemic. We've had people in Berlin and in London and in Tokyo and all over the world saying, look, we, we now believe in Jesus and we really believe in the importance of the church, but we just can't find a community that, that reflects our frequency the way Mosaic does. And, and so we basically opened up houses um, all over the world. And I think we've had up to 400 houses and uh, that are mosaic houses all over the world. And wow. and that's something we did during the pandemic. So we grew during the pandemic dramatically and actually formalized a lot of these places, saying, hey, we see you, you belong to us, we belong to you. And that's been a huge part of who we are. And at the same time, we turned our Hollywood location, dominantly into a production studio. And mm-hmm. uh, and um, we we redesigned everything. We have our podcast space and we're filming space for messages. And right now we're using the, the space that was a former auditorium. Um, we have a, uh, a friend, Angela Davis, um, who did one of my genius of podcasts. She has a company called Army and they do like the soul cycling kind of bicycle stuff. We transformed our auditorium and during the week she's been doing a pop-up shop and all these people have been coming to Mosaic that would never come into our building uh, you know, to get fat, and and it's just absolutely extraordinary. And we've just been looking at so many different ways to uh, innovate, to integrate um, who we are with the world around us. And uh, and 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 I think this is an exciting time. I mean, it's it is a scary time in for a lot of people. And you know, during the pandemic, we had people joining our church and started hmm. to give. We had people not only that gave one time, people who became recurring givers. Right, and and I would say that our top givers never walk into our building. And by the way, that was true before <laughs> the pandemic. And, uh, yeah. and and you know, and I just talked to a pastor on the East Coast, and he said they did an analysis before the pandemic, and they found that their most committed people only came once a month. Really. Yeah. And and I think that this idea that our most committed people are coming every week is actually a an illusion that makes us feel like what we're doing is really valid, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we probably have like an eighty percent turnover every week before the pandemic, and and we realize that, and and you know and so some of it is I just trying to ask the question how do we engage into new um, domains of human experience? So I would say right now. 80% of my time is um, where I'm out somewhere, maybe 90% is in the business sector, spending time with people right. who are in the business world, entrepreneurs, uh, innovators, uh, creators, and almost, uh, well, maybe almost 0% of my time. Do I spend any time in the, in the kind of uh, the Christian space right now? No, actually I'd say 100% of my time and, uh, is in those other domains. Uh, because if you're going to, in a sense, do evangelism in this new world, you better learn how to um, inhabit this new world well.
0: I want to go there. I just want to ask you: Are you rethinking in-person gatherings and how they will be? Are you back yet in person on Sundays, or will you come back soon? Or
1: we we will come back um, in October when we launch our uh, the Genius of Jesus series connected to my book. Uh, but right now we do, we do have in-person gatherings, uh, but they've been mostly video worship and video messages, right? And uh, and and then we just encourage everyone who's vulnerable or has, you know, um, is immune compromised or is nervous, just to keep joining us online. And so we're not trying to create a two-class system where um, the the really committed Christian is the one who's coming, and the and the the one who's not coming, coming online, is not committed Christian. And we, we just realized that we, we have a very complex world in which we live in. And what we want people is to become just fully passionate followers of Jesus, connecting people to him in whatever environment. I was just in Mexico City this past weekend. We have a campus there. Um, we did our first gathering in almost two years because uh, Mexico City was really locked down. We we were in the middle of Polanco, which is like the Beverly Hills kind of, of – um, of Mexico City, we, there's an outdoor arena venue that we rented and we had around a little over 1400 people show up wow. and for the first gathering. So you cannot tell me people are not hungry to come back together. And, and I, I think this is something I used to teach before the pandemic and I think I, I want to reemphasize. Um, gathering together is not a singular experience for the church. This is this is a human communal reality. Um, going to a soccer match, you have 120,000 people jammed into a stadium in Brazil or wherever it may be. You know, going to an NBA basketball game, 20,000 people jammed into an arena. I mean, why do people like the live experience where they can watch it on television and it's a better visual experience? Ooh. It's because humans long for that communal dynamic or you are you know um, the home team and you're experiencing this with other people and you're all cheering and, and chanting and ooing and awing together uh, there it's, there's a reason why would you go listen to coldplay or you2 live in a concert with you know 25,000 sweating fans when you could just buy the album and it's perfect yeah. it's because humans don't need perfect experiences they they need authentic trans, uh, transparent human experiences and and when people say, well, you know, the, it's really the end of large gatherings, I'm going, that will never be true. And, and uh, not about the church. Uh, people want to pack the stadium. They want to pack the arena. They want to be with 50 other thousand people who love Bonnie Iver, you know? And uh, and then some people will choose that intimate place where they're gonna pay a lot more money to get to hear Bonnie Iver with only 200 people. And, right. and the reality is that, you know, some people will go to that, um, soccer match, but they'll buy the suite because they just want to be with 20 people in the middle of 80,000 people. And there are different kinds of humans. They have different kinds of wealth experiences. Uh, but the 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 longing to celebrate with other people, something you are deeply passionate about, I don't think that's ever going to go away because I think it's a human experience. The problem is that the church takes for granted what kind of experience is necessary to create that kind of human dynamic. And we have to continually re-examine whether we're creating that well.
0: How are you reexamining your in-person services? Like as you move forward in October and beyond, what are you thinking you might do differently and what might you do the same?
1: Well, one of the things I am doing right now is, um, and I've just started doing this, is uh, we, we record, we film our messages for, on, for our online community. Right. But right now I'm speaking live in different um, in different spots, but I'm not releasing those talks. And so people have been coming to me going, wait a minute, we heard the talk in South at the Rialto Theater. We hold the talk at, at Hollywood. Can we get that? And I go, no. In fact, I had this conversation this week, people, multiple influencers. I think it was, might've been even like, might've been Lewis Howes. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I think it was him because he came. And, and and I said, no, these are one-time experiences. See, one of the things that that, uh, social media and technology has done is it's it's diminished the wonder of the live experience because you can just watch it online. Right. So I'm actually, and we'll continue, I'm going to create live experiences that you cannot get in the other way. Hmm. And so you can get something online that's really powerful and really um, crafted for you. But if you but if you want to get what's happening live, you got to just, you got to show up. I, I, I think those like, um, existential moments are pretty awesome where you go this moment doesn't exist past this moment hmm. and and I, I used to know I used to have a friend who was um, an artist but all of his sculptures were sand sculptures and he was brilliant and I would ask him I said why don't you choose a different medium nothing you do lasts." and he said that's the beauty of my work wow is that nothing I do lasts and and, and that's when I started really thinking through about the, the eternal significance of temporary things. Hmm. And, and so I think we'll do more things. We're gonna increase the quality of what we do online because we want to be the best in the world. And we're going to increase the quality of what we do in person and make it exclusive and not necessarily make it available to anyone so that they both have a unique value.
0: Well, we could spend a lot more time on that. I'm going to leave that there because we have a lot of ground to cover. But I do want to talk about your friendship with Lewis Howes to the extent that you're comfortable. So a couple of years ago, first time you were on his podcast. So for those who don't know Lewis, Lewis is a social media influencer. School of Greatness has hundreds of millions of downloads. Uh, I've been a listener for a long time. By the way, Lewis uh, was on this podcast back in year one, back in the day. Anyway, you built a friendship with him. Lewis would, I don't like categorizing people, but be spiritually open, curious. But you built a friendship with him. You were on his podcast. I remember listening to that two and a half years ago. And I thought it was just a masterclass in influence. We'll link to that first interview. Then you were just back on. So as we're recording this, he has not released part two of the second round of conversation with you. But it was pretty amazing because he had you on this podcast and everybody, you know, from all kinds of diverse backgrounds is listening, probably not a predominantly Christian audience. And you basically just talked about Jesus for an hour and a half on his show with him. Can you talk about cultivating influence with people like Lewis, with the business connections you have? Because I really did in that first interview in particular thought that that was a masterclass in how to really build a dialogue with people who may not have the same worldview that you do?
1: One, I love Lewis, and he has become a very, very personal friend. And um, it it is funny because I had him on on my Genius of podcast, and I immediately got someone sending me a negative critique going, how can you have Lewis House?" And I think people don't understand that I'm not interested in spending my life with people who Believe and who agree with me and who have already yeah. found faith, or and 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 I think the tragedy sometimes is that uh, we think holiness is irrelevance. Hmm. <laughs> oh. But a, but a part of I think that I have to tell you it was so much fun doing his podcast, and it was a kind of a domino effect. There's a business guy named Joel Marion, yeah, and yeah. he yeah. contacted me and asked me to do his podcast, so I did his podcast for his business community. And then he went and did Lewis's and he told Lewis, you need to have this guy named Erwin McManus. And so then Lewis reached out to me, next thing I know I'm doing Lewis's podcast. And and we didn't know each other, we'd never met, we really didn't know much about each other at all. I'd never heard of Lewis. So I was going in point blank and, um, and he'd never heard of me probably. And so um, we began uh, this conversation and I was told he was an atheist. Another friend had been talking to him and said he's, and they sent me some of their conversations and they were, they were pretty like tense. And so I realized, okay, there's a lot of tension here in this faith conversation. And I think sometimes it's because we try to outsmart the other person. Sure. And and I don't ever feel a need to try to outsmart someone. I just really want to understand. And And I, and, and I really believe that all the material to come to believe already exists inside of that person, that you don't need to, you don't need to um, bring something to that person as much as you need to pull something out of that person. And so the whole conversation, we're, you know, I'm just listening and we're having this great conversation and, and realize later, oh, wow, Lewis just did the most extraordinary thing. It was the most authentic thing a human can do. He allowed himself to be vulnerable and exposed in a conversation about faith and um, it's one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. But I think sometimes we misjudge people's openness. I, I, um, I did a podcast last year for a business uh, man named Ed Milat. And oh, yeah. Ed has millions of followers and incredibly influential. And I think he has like 30 companies or something. And And, and what I thought was fascinating is he told me recently that up to that point, that was his highest downloaded podcast. He had three and a half million downloads of our conversation. He said by then the year will be wow. six million, and so he has almost completely a business audience. And you know, people don't follow him necessarily for faith; they follow him because they want to figure out how to become financially uh, free or to become more affluent or to have more business success. And he just told me recently, you know, now other than one interview he had with the guy who killed Osama bin Laden our conversation is the most downloaded conversation he's ever had. See, I, I think we underestimate how open people are. And they just want to know you're real. They want to know you're authentic. They want to know that you don't have an agenda, that you're not, in a sense, even trying to... Con- I'm not, I, I never walk into a room trying to convert someone. Hmm. And I, I walk into a room trying to understand someone, uh, to truly care about that person, to, um, to know their life and their story and and, and then to pay attention to where I can see the fingerprint of God all over their life. And, and I, I just think it's one of the most enjoyable things in the world, and I've been doing that privately for 40 years, Yeah. and I've been, and I've been trying to help pastors and, and, and followers of Jesus understand how to do that, but it's very, very difficult because I'm never going to publicly expose someone I'm having a conversation with and say, okay, this is how you do it. This is how you have this meaningful conversation. And Lewis actually gave me that gift by inviting me on his podcast and, and then having that conversation together. I didn't know that's where it was going to go. Um, I thought it was going to be more of a business conversation, but I was so happy to go there together.
0: He he was. I really like Lewis. I have so much uh, respect for him and affection for him. And you can see there's a very open heart in that and a curious spirit in him. We will link to all of your conversations with Lewis, but particularly that first one, and then also the one with Ed Milet in the show notes. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about The Genius of Jesus. You've got a great new book out. Uh, and I don't usually ask this question, but I really want to ask you this question. Why why The Genius of Jesus? You know, people are always, why did you write the book? But why did you write about The Genius of Jesus? Because it's pretty pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's several ways I could sort of um, slice what really motivated me to write the book. But what really began to form the conversation about the specific conversation in the book is I was in my back house during the quarantine, and I was having a conversation with myself, as uh, I often do, and um, I heard this, like, a little voice in my head say, it's kind of odd that your entire life centers around a person who Lived two thousand years ago, and and I thought, yeah, that is really, it's really weird that that this is true. And and I, you know, I had like this moment of angst, going, it's crazy that my life, everything, everything revolves around Jesus. And and then I had this thought, well, you know, well, it makes sense if he's God, but what if he isn't God? And and then the other voice said, well you You may be able to deny that Jesus is God, but you can't deny that he changed you and 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 I thought, oh wow, well, that's 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 a weird place to be and then and then I had this other thought that said, "Well, all right, you've either been changed. You can't deny that you've been changed by Jesus. So right. either you've been changed by the reality of who Jesus is as God, or you've been changed by the idea of Jesus. And this is the way my brain kind of works <laughs> through things. and uh, and then I thought, wow! If that's true, see, a lot of people would get nervous by that, but I actually find it to be like really compelling. So I go, if that's true, this is a stroke of genius. What idea could change a person two thousand years later? And and so then I thought, this then is the genius of Jesus, that somehow whatever it is about him actually changes people's lives thousands of years later. And it changes governments, changes the way we think of political systems, of power, uh, and uh, of justice, of, of equality, everything. Uh, the conversations have shifted because of his life. And, and, but then I, I've looked at lists of geniuses for probably 40 years. I've never seen Jesus on a single list. So then the question came to mind, well, why isn't Jesus on a single list of geniuses if he is a genius? And then, So then I asked, well, you know, I, I know da Vinci's a genius. He's like one of my life um, iconic people in my life. I so much of my life early on, I was trying to emulate Da Vinci, and, uh, and, and I was always been fascinated with Picasso and and uh, Mozart, Beethoven, uh, Bobby Fischer, Einstein, hockey. So I my entire life since I was young, I, I've been really drawn to the uh, the phenomenon of genius and geniuses. And I thought, why doesn't Jesus ever make it on a list? I mean, Buddha makes it on lists, and. Um, Gandhi makes it on lists, and I've even seen lists where Muhammad's on the list. And so I thought, why, why is Jesus not on a list of geniuses? And so I thought, okay, if you extricate all the divinity, all the miracles of Jesus, and and uh, and and just put them aside like mythology, does the person Jesus qualify as a genius? And and that's how I began the book. And so I, I began just trying to look at again, like as an anthropologist, going, does Jesus of Nazareth qualify as a historical genius? And if he does, what is his genius? And if he does have a particular genius, why has that genius been overlooked for 2,000 years? Why why has no one in 2,000 years ever written about the genius of Jesus? And so that's how I wrote the book. In fact, my first draft of the book, I wrote it as if I did not believe. I I, I, I basically put my own personal convictions, belief on the shelf, and wrote this book as an analysis of whether Jesus, what, what genius actually is, if Jesus qualifies, and then what that genius is. And what's really fascinating to me is that it, it, it actually made me admire Jesus more. And, and then I realized oh, one of the frustrating things about genius is that it's not transferable that if you, if you could spend your life with Mozart, you would not become a great composer, or you spend your life with Fischer, you've not become a master chess player, you spend your life with Picasso, you would not become a world-class painter. So one of the great frustrations with genius is it's not transferable. But here's the difference. The genius of Jesus is actually transferable. That, that the genius that Jesus actually unwraps is about how to be fully human, and this is why his genius was overlooked because genius needs a canvas it's it's almost not so much that you say a person is a genius but they have a genius hmm. and so you look at the the canvas you know Picasso's a genius you listen to the composition you know Mozart is a genius you look at the the the, the, the board and you know that Fisher was a genius and you know that you look at the the math you know that Einstein is a genius but where is genius Jesus' is genius displayed and you realize oh this is why it's so easily missed because the canvas of the genius of Jesus is the human spirit. And the, the, the journey toward becoming fully human is actually the canvas from which his genius is actually demonstrated and displayed. And that for me became so fascinating. But after I sent in my first draft, my editor came back and said, hey, could you put back into the book that you actually believe so that you don't trip up people who actually believe in Jesus now? They'll think you're a heretic. And, and I actually thought the book had a unique elegance uh, without my personal belief, because I, I think Jesus stands alone without my belief. Hmm. and uh, and I, and I thought it was almost more compelling if I could write it from the outside looking in. But and this is part of the frustration I have is sometimes with like our own faith, is that it's so concrete and uh, and 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 so in many ways, almost like um, logistical that if you don't say a, B, C, then you're not one of us. Right, right. You didn't check all the boxes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm going, this is why our best our art doesn't exist and why our best narratives don't exist. This is why we're not great at communicating who Jesus is to the world, because we feel so much pressure to say things in a way that dogmatic Christians will say, okay, you're acceptable, hmm. rather than asking the question, um, how do I communicate to an unbelieving world? Jesus would never be accepted by the orthodoxy of modern Christianity. I mean just the fact that he talks about wheat and talks about bread he talks you know he turns water into wine and he talks about water and you know he's just not using Deuteronomy or Exodus enough. you know he's just not using the the law and the prophets enough he, He's way 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 too abstract in his use of just common materials and I actually think that um, Jesus is genius, by the way, goes so far beyond my book. And and I was I was afraid to write a book about Jesus. Hmm. And because I understand the dilemma. I mean, there's a book about Jesus that's called the Bible. And uh, and that's the only book that, in my estimation, will, will be, ever be flawless, <laughs> you, you know, and and about who Jesus is. To write a book about Jesus is such a sacred thing, but I felt like it was so important to bring a new, fresh perspective on the person of Jesus that both helps the person who believes see the compelling argument of why this genius needs to be absorbed into their life, but also a compelling way of helping a person who does not believe in God or believe in Jesus see Jesus from an entirely new vantage point. I do want to jump into a couple of specifics, but I want
0: to kind of frame that because I think you're right. You know, your argument that genius doesn't transfer except for Jesus. Like, you're right. You could have been Picasso's next-door neighbor or his younger brother, And you wouldn't have been a great artist. And you're right. The genius, like in Michelangelo or da Vinci, it lives in the past. It died when they died, right? So you get a painting in a museum. You get a sculpture. You get whatever you happen to get. With Einstein, the mind ended up in a jar. His brain literally ended up in a jar. That's a whole story for a whole other day, if you listen to Isaacson's biography of Einstein. But anyway... um, you know jesus you make the argument his genius transfers to every generation of followers so that we view empathy differently we view power differently that his genius is transferable and lives in us which is which is a fascinating argument but you start out you've done quite a bit of research into genius do you make an argument that like most of us are born with a level of genius that kind of disappears over time do you want to do you want to talk about that
1: sure you know I, i'm I, i've been a, um a part of a group, and uh, where everyone has to run a company that minimally makes a hundred million dollars a year, and okay. and all the participants pay a hundred thousand dollars just to be a part of it. And um, I do not pay that. I get to. I get okay, to buy- you 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 got <laughs> comped. <laughs> I know. I, I, I get. I go and speak, and okay, and so I go and mentor some of these men, and uh, and so I'm having dinner with Walter O'Brien who has the highest recorded IQ in the world and he was the inspiration of the tv show Scorpion and um and so I you know Walter speaks I speak and then we're at dinner and he, and he looked at me and he goes I I was told this conversation was inevitable and, uh, and so that well, that's an interesting way to begin this conversation and then he says to me you know I I disagree with half of everything you said and I was speaking on Genius and I, I'm an optimist. I'm going, the guy with the highest IQ in the world agrees with half of everything I said. And that is huge. And uh, that was just in the first presentation. That wasn't even with wow. the follow-up conversations. I knew I can pick up another percentage here and there. And, and then he said, because, you know, the, I can argue the facts because the facts are against right. you. And uh, I, I'm just so exhilarated, right? You, you know, and because he's right. See, the facts are against me because the facts always reaffirm the past. The facts do not affirm the future. And the, the, actually the future oftentimes violates the facts because the facts were that the world was flat. And right. uh, you know the, the facts were that uh, the sun revolves around the earth. The facts were that matter and energy were different things. We, we know the facts and and one of the things that is important to me to real uh, for people to realize is that i'm i'm a minority voice right now this book is seminal it is it is a 1% conversation and i would like christianity to get there first because when you look at some of the studies and there's been quite a few studies over the years around creativity and and human adaptability and um and genius and and one of the things if i just give you an example that uh, most people, most Americans say they're not good at languages. I, I don't know if you would say that right. you're like a linguistic savant, you, you know. Uh, no, I know. I sort of speak English on a good day. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason Americans don't think they're good at languages is because they only had to learn one. Right. Because when they, were, when they were two years old, their environment told them that you only needed one language to survive and thrive. Spanish was my first language. I'm from El Salvador. I learned English when I came to the States at three, four, five years old. And English was easy. It's one of the most complex languages in the world. But it was easy. You know why? Not because I'm a linguistic savant, but because I was four. Yeah. Yeah. And because, see, being a genius is natural for a five-year-old. And what you find is that in certain studies that have reinforced this, that and, and, um, George did a study, and in, in his assessment of five-year-olds found that 98% of the children that were tested came out geniuses. In wow. this genius assessment put together by NASA. And then oh, they, they logged the Doodle study, five years later, they were 10 years old, only 30% of them were still testing as geniuses. And then five years later at the age of 15, only 12% of them tested out as geniuses. And then once they tested all, an entire mass of 31-year-olds only two percent of them tested out as geniuses. So my argument here is not that I can make you a genius; is that the world has unmade your genius, that that your whatever this human experience is in combination between parenting and education and environmental um, factors and conditioning and and I, I think this for me when the Bible says, "Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world." I wonder we always talk about sin when we read that passage. What about if we're conforming to a mediocrity, conforming to a status quo, we're conforming to an ordinary that is impressed upon us so that we fit better into society? And he says, then be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Maybe a part of what that passage is telling us is that there is a latent, inherent genius inside of all of us that has been lost when we conformed to the pattern of this world. And that what Jesus has come is to transform us, the renewing of our minds, so that inceptual that original genius in us can actually be reawakened do you
0: remember from that study what some of the qualities or characteristics of genius would be
1: that we I, off I, I don't uh, right offhand and okay. but i do know that uh, one of the larger distinctions is the difference between um, divergent and convergent thinking okay can you explain that yeah sure you know Divergent thinking, you look at an iron and they tell you, what do you do with this? And you can think of 27 different things to do with an iron. It's a paperweight, you know, it's yeah, yeah. placeholders like. And, and convergent thinking is you look at the iron, you go, you iron with it because you need to fill in the blank properly. I remember early on about 35 years ago when I was first speaking and um, my wife said, no one can understand what you're saying. And then we heard this really famous speaker, and and he had these fill in the blanks, five points, and you had a blank, and you filled in the blank, and so you knew that truth filled the blank. And so then I tried that, but I would have like thirty five blanks, and uh, and 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 then my my leadership group, the, the elders that were there, said, "Hey, could you stop doing that because you don't even tell us what it's in the blank," and and I, and I realized that a part of the problem is that. Um, and Christians want there to be a blank and they want one answer to fill the blank. Right. That's convergent thinking. That's mm-hmm. not just Christians, that's humans. Children don't know that there's one answer to one question. Yeah. And divergent thinking is the ability to think outside the box, to think of endless possibilities, to be highly imaginative and creative. I mean, if, if the highest form of intelligence is creativity, then curiosity becomes the fuel of our genius. Children are inherently curious. Everything about human development is based on curiosity. The reason a child's neck gets stronger is because it's so determined to look around. The reason a child actually begins to crawl is because it wants to go exploring. The reason a child begins to walk is because it wants to go to unknown lands. Everything about human development is fueled by human curiosity. If we were not curious, we would still be held by someone because we wouldn't want to go anywhere. We wouldn't want to know anything. We want to to experience anything new. And isn't that the description of a lot of us as adults? We don't want to experience anything new. We don't want to know anything new. We don't want to go anywhere new. We don't want to even try any new food or any new experiences or places. And our curiosity is essential to unlocking our genius. And so I, I think that this divergent, convergent thinking is really critical. And I remember one day in uh, in an interview, someone asked me, Erwin, uh, what do you do, what are your practices or habits to think outside of the box? And, and I remember saying, this was probably 20 years ago, I said, you don't understand. I work extremely hard to think inside of the box. That when I became a follower of Jesus, to belong to the church. I wanted so bad to think like all the the most influential Christians that I would actually try to learn how to think inside of the box. Most of the time when I said something outside of the box, it was an accident. I didn't know it was outside of the box. I didn't know it was wrong. I didn't know it was heretical. I didn't know it would create controversy. And I think the one thing I'm really grateful for is that in, in all the different experiences I had growing up, my imagination remained unlocked. Wow. And and I think that, that part of the inherent creativity that God gave me wasn't something that made me special. It didn't make me different than other people. What makes me different is that I didn't lose it.
0: Yeah. You know, Erwin, I've seen a similar thing and wondered about it non-scientifically. Like, there's a wonder in a child's eyes. And at some point, sometimes it's four, sometimes it's age eight, but it's almost always gone by ten but that wonder just kind of disappears and the same with trust like kids are so naturally trusting and then somewhere along the line you can tell that they're 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 hedging a little bit they're worried they're not as open they're not as trusting and i always think like what happened to that child like what what story what series of events and it doesn't have to be big and traumatic but life just kind of beats that out of us um, anything else about genius? What about Walter, who whose scorpion was based on? What else did you notice about him or learn from him in that conversation?
1: Well, I mean, I, I've I've been around him a bit, and he's really a brilliant guy. Really inquisitive, really thoughtful. Um, I, I, you know, I, I sometimes I I just um, well, actually, almost always. Whenever I begin a new relationship, I'm more in the learning mode. You know, I, I'm trying to learn from that person. I'm trying to grow from that person. And I just believe that every human being has something to teach me. And, and you know, so I was just um, just fascinated. I'm just really grateful to even have him disagree with me. Like, you know, and um, to disagree with me at least means you gave me some consideration. And and then it forces me to go back and, and re-examine, you, you know, and ask, okay, is this something I have a deep conviction about? Is this something that I'm going to fight for? And and I and it just gave me so much, so much more resolve um, to be a person who advocates for um, the inherent, essential genius in every human being. And doesn't mean every it doesn't mean everyone's a genius. And uh, in that sense, like a Mozart, Picasso, but it means that everyone, in some sense, has a genius. And 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 when I look at the life of Jesus, I go, oh we can at least all be geniuses in what it means to be fully human in the way that we relate to each other the way we we invest in the value of relationships and and you know with these guys who are working in billions of dollars and and in one of the conversations i told him i said hey look the the dumbest choices you will ever make will not cost you money it will cost you people and and when you look back on your life, like the, the genius you really want is the genius of building healthy, meaningful, lifelong relationships.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you cover the geniuses of empathy, power, grace, the good, the true, and the beautiful in the book. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to pick one. Uh, let's talk about power because we got leaders listening to this let me, podcast. Let me, let me pick one. You just picked it. I picked it. I picked it. You get to pick the next one. Is that a good plan?
1: Um, can we drill down on power a little bit, and then you pick one? Sure. I, I I just think it's there's some there's certain things that we talk about today, conversations we have now, that we we almost make assumptions that we think have always been true, and so it if I could just be controversial just for a minute about like some social issues, right? You know, during the pandemic, during the quarantine, we had the entire Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, you know, I mean, we had probably 500 people who walked by our house because we live really close to the mayor. Uh, I and mean, my, my son, where he lived, his place was boarded up. We had the National Guard here. I mean, LA was pretty intense. We had buildings set on fire and torn down. And 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 I, and I have so many friends uh, in, in the black community. And, by, and you may not know this, but I pastored a predominantly black church for many, many years. And I didn't know that. No. And I did. You know, so I would say like 70 to 80% of our congregation was black. And uh, and it was in a predominantly black community, and so um, this and and you know being an immigrant myself, this this story is a part of my my life story, and and we start having conversations about reparations, you know reparations, let's say for slavery, or or you know in New Zealand reparations to the Maori, or in Australia reparations to the ab- Aboriginal, and here you know even for Native uh, you know Indigenous American Indians and um, and. And this language is actually not a historic language. This is a language since Jesus. See, because Genghis Kong never worried about reparations. He never felt he had any moral responsibility uh, to somehow make it right for all the women he raped and all the men he killed and all the families destroyed and all the villages he burned down. And we have Caesar or um, Alexander, they never really had remorse for anything they conquered or anything they destroyed or any people whose lives they they um you know they they overthrew this this concept of justice of using power well is a concept that only emerges because Jesus lived 2000 years ago he revolutionized the entire understanding of power the idea that a government should actually care about its citizens is <laughs> really it's it's not a, a, a historic human concept. This, this concept is infused by the ethics uh, that Jesus brought to the understanding of power that, you know, it says that Jesus when Jesus had all power and all authority, he ties a towel around his waist and he washes his disciples' feet. This is a reinvention of power. This was not how power was understood by Caesar or by Rome or by any empire in human history. And and and, it, and it's it, you can only take it back so far, right? Because then the the Kiwis are trying to bring reparations for the Maori, but the Maoris, when they traveled to other islands, would actually eat the other tribes as a part of conquest. And and you know when you look back at human history, conquest, destruction, it, it was a natural part of the human story. And even if you go back to World War II, I mean, as horrific as that war was, and as devastating as um, dropping two bombs on Japan, which I think is is, you know, is horrific, and, and you know, destroying Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But when you look at the, the, the American response to conquering Germany and conquering Japan, and how within a decade or two, both of them became two of the greatest economies in the world, but there's a difference between West and East Germany. And you get to see what happens when you're conquered in a atheistic world with East Germany. You get to see what happens when you're conquered from a Christian mindset world with West Germany. And you you realize that Japan becomes one of our greatest allies. That doesn't happen historically. You do not conquer a nation and then rebuild it to feel a moral obligation to reestablish that country better than it was before, even what we've done historically has been informed, but by a Christian worldview. I'm not saying that England or the United States or you know any Western nation is a Christian nation. What I'm saying is the conversations we're having are informed by Jesus's revolutionary, brilliant, genius thoughts about power.
0: Hmm. hmm. I heard you in your Lewis Howes interview talk about uh the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus teaching about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile, which in many ways we've just kind of popularized into trivial ideas. But they had they had a pretty powerful origin. Do you mind sharing that, Irwin?
1: Well, I don't want to be completely redundant and some of it's in the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I will say like just one of those um metaphors that Jesus uses, because it's more than a metaphor. He says, you know, if they force you to carry um, their load for one mile, carry it for two miles. And what you find out historically is that the Roman soldiers were permitted to force a Hebrew man to carry the load from their horse, to give the horse a rest for up to a mile. So you could command that Hebrew would have to walk a mile. And I think a lot of times people don't realize that Jesus was born into slavery. And when I wrote that in a previous book, the, the publishers want me to change that. They said, no, no, you, you, you can't say that. I said, no, you can't see it. And this is where I have to say, you can't see it because you're from a white Western mindset. And uh, you've reinterpreted Jesus from this framework. But Jesus was actually born to slavery. The Roman Empire conquered Israel, and they were not free. And, you, you, and they were actually a nation bound to another power. They were under them. And, and the, he grew up in oppression. And I think this is important because the Bible is written by people who experienced slavery. It's really important to understand that. And they were, they were not written by people, quote, with political freedom. They were written by people mm-hmm. who found the power of, of intrinsic freedom while they had oppression all around them. And so when Jesus said, look, when they force you to carry that load for one mile, you are obligated to do that or you'll be killed it'll give the Roman an excuse to end you. But the way you can actually be more powerful than their oppression is at the end of the mile, when he says, okay, you can put the pack back on my horse, you're free to go, and you say, no, I'll carry the second mile. And in that moment, you experience a level of power and freedom that the Roman cannot understand because you should not be choosing to serve your enemy when you're now free. And the difference is you walk back after that one mile powerless, but you walk that second mile powerful. And Jesus is is absolutely transforming their understanding of the use of power, even under oppression. Wow.
0: It's interesting, but in the cultural narrative, Because I've heard people say, hey, this is the legacy of Christianity, right? Even equality. We often, it's easy to be called, well, we're oppressive, we're whatever, whatever. What do you think the church is missing in that power dynamic? Because I think it's a valid criticism of many in the church that we don't exercise power the way Jesus does. That we are the conquerors without the reparations. That we are uh, the oppressors at times. Any thoughts on that?
1: Well, of course. I mean, sometimes we're just our worst enemies. I mean, for years I yeah. would tell I would tell Campus Crusade it's just a bad name. You know, oh. the Crusades were not our best moment. And so sometimes I don't think we we understand that, and that's what I mean. Sometimes um, our, our our almost our inherent um, cultural filter it hurts us. You know, we don't we don't realize how what's normal to us how it's interpreted by other people. And, and, and I think one of the interesting dynamics is that I actually do believe in leadership. See, I mean, one of the great challenges like in Germany since Hitler was that leadership is seen only as a dark expression of, of human intention. And so what ends up happening is you create room only for negative leadership, for dark leadership. You, you have to actually not give up on something that has been misused. You have to you step into it with more ethic and more integrity and more honor and more nobility. So I, I I actually do believe that there, there should be leadership in the church. I just think that we need to understand what leadership looks like and what it needs to be informed by. And and, and I, I think one of the challenges is that if your entire identity is wrapped up in being a pastor, like what's so funny to me is like for the last 40 years, I, I've gotten a lot of criticism because I've always worked outside of the church. You know, I, I've, I've been a fashion designer, worked in the film industry, and I, you know, I write books, I work as a futurist, I work in the business sector and... And I've I've always done that, and I always will. well. And then people go, "Why is a pastor a fashion designer?" I'm going, "You should be more nervous about the person whose entire identity is wrapped up in being a pastor." And uh, like I, being a pastor is what I do because of my deep devotion and calling from Jesus. It's not what I need. It's not even my preferred vocation. A lot of times, you know, and uh, it's it's what I my soul longs to contribute to the world. And and I think that that this dynamic needs to be rethought. And, um, and, and, and we actually, I think, one, realize that pastors are imperfect people. And, and you, don't, you can't expect perfection, but you can't expect honesty. Right. You, you, you know, you, you don't expect a person to get it all right, but you do need to have a person who is transparent and authentic in that journey. And, and I can tell you, the Christian culture is not really predisposed toward that. And hmm. and uh, you know, twenty years ago, when I first started talking about how, when I was twelve years old, I was in a psychiatric chair and, and um, struggled with real like mental illness as a kid, and um, and it it, it 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 people were like, you can't talk about these things, you can't you know, you can't be this open about who you are or when I would say, hey, you know, I really struggled with prayer, or and then immediately I would get all this feedback going. You shouldn't even be the pastor because you're struggling with prayer. And, uh, and and I realized, oh, it, the culture does not lend itself toward authenticity and transparency and true humanity. And I mean, yesterday I was in a meeting and with our team and I said, hey guys, we're in a significant crisis right now, and my first m- mode of operation is I'm a problem solver, so I spent the week trying to solve these problems, and, and when I realized I couldn't solve them, then I felt a sense of desperation which led me to prayer. And my wife is like, no, don't say that. You should, you should be telling should everybody started you know, Started with the prayer, prayer first. And I go, I don't, I'm not a person who feels desperate very much. So when it says the desperate prayers of a righteous man, I'll be honest with you, I have 40 years of experience in leading, 40 years as an entrepreneur, 40 years as a problem solver. My first mode is, can I solve this? And and it takes a little bit for me to get to that point where I'm going, oh wow, God, this is so far out of my um, you know domain and capacity that I'm feeling a little desperate now, and I really need you to intervene and give me wisdom or solve this outside of me, and and it isn't um, normative to talk like that when you're I guess the spiritual leader, and and I think that's a shame, you know, and I think a lot of pastors end up getting in a really bad place because they they've they lived inauthentically because it's in a strange way what was required of them hmm. and and what I think is really great is that when you're reaching people who are without Jesus there people without Jesus don't hide their sin they don't hide their brokenness <laughs> they don't hide their baggage they you know yeah I'm sleep of course I'm living with my girlfriend who doesn't you, you know and I mean of course you know, I'm doing that. I mean, and, you know, they're just cussing everywhere and, you know, they're, they're corrupt in some of their business dealings and, and, and they're not hiding who they are. So when they come to faith, they're not hiding who they were. This is who I am. And now I come to faith in the reality of this mess. I think when you grow up in the church and you have Christian parents, you're expected to be perfect from go. So you're five years old and you can't have a temper tantrum. You know, don't you love Jesus? You know, you're you're eight years old. You can't hit the kid because they took your toy because you know you love Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're 11 and or 12 or 13 and you can't be going through purity and 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 you know and having sexual thoughts because you love Jesus. And 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 I think a huge part of the dilemma is when you grow up in church life, we suffocate people into pretension. Because they can't just be honest about what they're really going through and who they really are. And I think a part of what we have to reclaim is the ability to create safe environments for people to be imperfect. And then you're going to have better pastors. And uh, because they didn't learn how to fake it uh, until, quote, they made it.
0: Thank you for your refreshing honesty. I really appreciate it. So you get to pick one now. Uh, Which which genius do you want to talk about, Erwin?
1: Uh, you know, the one that, when I was writing it, I felt like this epiphany was the chapter on the good. Okay. And in fact, when I was writing that chapter, my only real concern was I could not express effectively what was going through my mind. And because I, I feel like many times I have ideas and thoughts that I have not yet been able to translate into language. And And as I was writing this chapter... It, it, it was the first time I felt like I ever put into writing my own moral compass, and uh, you know I've been a follower of Christ for 43 years, and um, and one of the things that the people who are close to me, you know, will tell you is that I'm I'm the same person, you know, and anywhere you meet and on on the platform, you know, in my backyard, wherever I am, I'm just me, you know, and 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 it I, I I've realized that. I wasn't making decisions between good and evil and right and wrong, that, that early on, that's all I heard. And I know that's the Christian narrative. It's like the devil or God, right, you know? And, um, and I think that's actually a very primitive, low level of thinking, that when you're thinking about good and evil and right and wrong, you're, you're still at the basic level of thinking. It's not that it's not true, it's that it's not everything. And, and so, in, in that chapter, I talk about how Jesus shifts because the Pharisees were all about right and wrong. Is it right to heal on the Sabbath or is it wrong? Is it right to do good or is it wrong? And so, the, the, the religious leaders were all about right and wrong. And I think right and wrong gets you into a moralistic dilemma. It's about who's more right and who's more wrong. And what Jesus actually did is he changed the, the compass. He said, you're asking about whether something's right and wrong, but you should be asking about whether it's good. Hmm. Because God is good. So he's not making choices between right and wrong, he's making choices between the right and the good. And because God's never choosing between the right and the wrong, because God's never tempted by right. the wrong. And he's actually trying to elevate us. Like once we get to the right, we're just getting started to the good. And so I don't wake up in the morning thinking, am I going to rob a bank? You know, and, uh, and although the, the television series from Spain, Casa de Papel, is one of my favorite, I think it's called Money Heist in English. And, and it sounds so fascinating to, to rob the, the bank of Spain. But I don't wake up in the morning going, am I going to rob a bank or am I going to, you know, try to do good today? You know, and I, I'm not making moral decisions the way I was when I was 20. And uh, before I met Jesus, and even as I came to know Jesus, I was making a lot of early moral decisions between right and wrong, right and wrong, right and wrong, right right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And then one day I was making decisions really between right and right and right and right. And then eventually what clicked in my mind was, uh, if you're only making decisions between right and wrong, um, you're not elevating to the genius of Jesus, which is choosing the good. And so I began making decisions in my life, what's the most good I can do? And... And how do I actualize that good through my life into the world? And if I can make choices on the good, I'm actually elevating my level of thinking.
0: I love that thought. That's actually very convicting and very challenging. Mm. So last question. Is there any question no one's asking you that you wish
1: someone would ask you? Wow. Um... That's a that's a great question. I, I I don't know if there's a question that I'm not being asked that I wish people would ask me. Uh probably questions not being asked and I'm glad people don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> we all have a few of those, don't we? You, yeah. You know, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess um the the thing that really for me, I don't know if this answers that question, but you know, I I think I've written eleven books and they all have meaning to me, and they're all really important. I wouldn't write them if I didn't think they were. Um, But I do think this is the most important book I've ever written. Mm. And um, I've never actually even tried to sell a book. It just hasn't been my thing. And um, publishers get upset with me. My friends do. Bill Hybels asked me once, why do you even write books? You don't even care about selling them. And, you know, and, and I realized I liked the creative process. I don't really like the process that is demanded for selling something. Uh, but frankly, I'll do anything humanly possible within ethics and integrity to get this book out to the world because I think it's the most important message I've ever put out into the world. And uh, and, and so maybe the question, you know, that people aren't asking me is, why do I think someone should spend $25 to buy a book by maybe an ordinary human being, you know? And, and, um, and you know, and to me, I think that... Um, I've spent my life—I feel like my life for me has been a a personal experiment on trying to figure out whether you could actually live a transcendent life, whether you could live a life that's more spirit than flesh, whether you could uh, live outside of the trappings of simply a material world, but to live from the vantage point of eternity. And I failed at this experiment so many times. but. I wrote the book asking the question, you can't deny that your life has been changed by Jesus. How do you explain it? Hmm. And I come to the end of the book going, it would be so much easier for my life if, if I could extricate Jesus from the equation and um, in so many different arenas, except that I can't, even, I can't even conceptualize life outside of Jesus anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same camp. You know, what I mean, it's like I don't even know how a person breathes without Jesus. I, I don't know how you don't suffocate um, without Jesus. And and I and I get I'm so frustrated that we've made Jesus a moralistic narrative of how to get out of trouble because you've done bad things. Mm-hmm. And and we I think we've demeaned the beauty and wonder of who Jesus is. And Jesus, you know, is a Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he is that work of art that even if you don't understand the genius of da Vinci, you know you're seeing something that you almost don't deserve to look at. And, and I, I mean, I really hope against hope that with all the imperfection of my skill and talent, that people will be astonished at the beauty of who Jesus is and be overwhelmed by his genius and be compelled by it. And um, and so, you know, for me, this is a really important moment. Um, and I hope that I've left something behind that will have an impact for hundreds of years.
0: Erwin, wow. I'll tell you, you stretch me every time we have a conversation. I know you've done that for thousands of leaders today as well. I just want to thank you for everything you're doing. Um, the book is called The Genius of Jesus, The Man Who Changed Everything available anywhere you can get books. Is there a particular website you would direct people to, or to where
1: people yeah, can, can, find, can you find you online? online. I have a, a really fun podcast called The Genius Of, where I'm interviewing friends like Ed Milet and Lewis Howes, and, and John Gordon and Angela Davis, and so many others. And, and then my son and I have this um, podcast that I just love called Battle Ready. And yeah. it, it's ever since when I survived cancer, he said, Dad, I have so many questions you've not answered. Could I ask you those questions and we've turned it into a podcast? And so, Battle Ready becomes our cultural conversation about everything in life. And it's been so much fun. And just encourage people to go to com, and they can access all that stuff.
0: It's fantastic. Erwin, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Hey, thank you so much, Carrie. God bless. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Irwin. It is never a dull moment when you talk to Irwin. We have show notes for you guys. You can head on over to com slash episode 452. And next episode, we've got something uh, really, really fun. We talk about gift giving and how a lot of people and a lot of companies and a lot of churches get it wrong. John Rulin, the founder of Giftology, is my guest. And here's an excerpt. Let's talk about swag because, uh, you know, given what I do with this podcast and the other stuff I do, I get a lot of swag. So I get Mm t-shirts, I get mugs and you're right. 99% of the time they have the logo of the sending organization on them. What is the challenge or the the problem with that? Well, a gift by its very nature is recipient focused. Like you'd never go to your best friend's wedding and on the Tiffany's vase, you know, compliments of Remax or you know, like, you know, compliments of Morgan Stanley or Ernst and Young. Like, it's just, it, that feels tacky. Like, we'd never do that in our personal lives, but in business, we do it because, well, what we're really trying to do is manipulate the situation. We're trying to turn that other person into a billboard for us. We're trying to get them to advertise for us, which is not a gift. That's a manipulation. That's coming up next time on the podcast. Hey, if you enjoy these episodes, please subscribe. And leave us a rating and a review. We read every single one of them, and I'm so grateful for your support. We're just in record territory with this podcast. Uh, You are getting the word out to person after person, and if it's making a difference for you, we hope and pray it makes a difference to other people. Also coming up, Scott O'Neill from the Philadelphia 76ers, Jessica Jackley, Dave Hollis. Uh, Nikki Gumble is going to jump back on. Ian Cron, who is a frequent flyer here, will be back on early in the new year. Mark Sayers, Mark Batterson, and a whole lot more. Very excited to bring you those episodes. Thank you to our partners. Hey, if you're not in on the five-day free social media growth challenge, register today before it's too late. I'll be there. Bob Goff, Nona Jones, Tim Timberlake, socialmediachallenge.com. And why not get better healthcare for your team next year? You can get 50% off the health benefits analysis right now by going to remodelhealth.com analysis. Use the coupon code CAREY50, that's C-A-R-E-Y-5-0. Go to remodelhealth.com analysis. Listeners of this podcast have saved two and a half million dollars And by the way, I do an awful lot over at my website, kerryneuhoff.com. That's where I do a lot of writing on a weekly basis. My writing alone is accessed over 600,000 times a month. And every day we send a little nugget of goodness to about 80,000 leaders and they get uh, a short little daily email. If you're interested in that, I would love to to help you with more than just this podcast. That's all over at kerryneuhoff.com if you want to sign up for the email list. I think it's about 83,000 people now carrynewhoffcom slash email. Anyway, thank you so much, everybody. I uh, hope you had a great day and we will catch you next time on the podcast. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never
1: before.